On this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts, we talk with Anthony Johnston, writer of novels, video games, and comic books, including the source material for the new film Atomic Blonde. And we talk about the Star Wars franchise and the troublingly frequent turnover in the director's chairs. Now, straight from the Berlin Wall graffiti cleanup crew, this is 1.21 Gigawatts! Hey there, and welcome to 1.21 Geekawatts, episode number 20 for September 2017. I'm your host, Brad Barton. This podcast is meant to shine a spotlight on the aspects of geek pop culture that I think are cool and noteworthy and should be celebrated. And I intend to do that not only by bringing you interviews with the creators of said nerdly awesomeness, but also with a series of rotating segments and features that take a deep dive into a specific geeky topic. Observers of the Star Wars film franchise know that Episode 9 director Colin Trevorrow was recently relieved of duty as he, the producers, and Lucasfilm head Kathleen Kennedy tried to finalize the film's script. They seemed to be hitting an impasse, Kennedy wasn't happy, and she fired Trevorrow, and we now know, of course, brought J.J. Abrams back to direct the final chapter of the sequel trilogy, just as he co-wrote and directed the first installment, The Force Awakens. But this is the fourth time out of six Star Wars projects in the Disney era that there have been directorial shifts behind the scenes. So, what the heck is going on? And at the end of the day, is this something that fans should be concerned about or ignore entirely or what? Normally, this would be exactly the sort of thing that this show's co-producer, David Sisko, and I would chat about before recording. Mm -hmm. I'd walk in the booth, Mm -hmm. we'd talk about it, and then we'd say, okay, let's get down to business. Mm -hmm. So this time, I'm dragging him away from behind the audio console, and we're putting him on a mic because he, too, is a big Star Wars nerd, and he's got some opinions. Ladies and gentlemen, behold the previously cloaked voice, the Phantom Menace, if you will, of Sisko. I'm going to insert some cheering or something right about here. I'm sure, I'm sure you are. <laughs> I'm sure that this you great. are. It's great. It's great to be here. I actually am very excited. Great to be here. Yeah. I'm, I should be saying that to you. I'm in your place. Well, no. Great, it's, I'm not sure where here is. Here is, we're, we're on the astral plane where there's a microphone, <laughs> so I guess, yes, this is my house, even though it's totally your house. So, um, so let's talk about this. Why does this, why does this keep happening? Kathleen Kennedy is a rock star producer. Like, her, her uh, resume is off the charts, her IMDb page is like the stuff of legend, and um, she was one of the the best things about like she's the new head of Lucasfilm. It's going to be great, uh, but uh, they seem to have issues. It's a bumpy road so far. I think it's fairly simple, yes. and and the, and that the answer is that this is a huge undertaking in the sense of you have multiple movies, you have you have amusement parks, you have street all these mm-hmm. services. So what they're trying to find is the person that's not going to not only fit the creative role, yeah. but the administrative and operational role. Think about how many people you have to worry about in that whole thing. Sure, that's true, even from a directorial standpoint, which is which is Huge. not not normally a director's role, necessarily. It depends on the franchise, I guess. But you're right, when they bring someone in, and we know that, like, J.J. had to do with, you know, he's got to vote on merchandise and... Uh, looking at the toy lines and all the PR mm-hmm. interviewing, mm-hmm. you have to be a very likable character. You have to go to Disney and speak there and wherever premiere. Think about this: each director has to go and do that stuff. Plus, 
Not to mention, you are, you have to worry about this vast Star Wars universe, right? Yeah, it's all got to fit. And it has nothing to do with you after a certain point, which is why <laughs> Ron Howard's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, he really is sort of interesting. Um, yeah, let's so let's talk about the Ron Howard thing. That's sort of fascinating. So if we jump over to the Han Solo movie, which uh, is the one that was getting all the press uh, up until the J.J. Abrams move, and in a way still kind of does. That's the one that I think everyone is feeling like, uh, is this going to work? Or to quote Han Solo, you hear me, baby, all together. Um, so when, uh, when we lost Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who are great directors, mm, they're great mm, directors, mm. but... Uh, it doesn't surprise me that it doesn't quite fit what they were doing. So then, yeah, when you bring in Ron Howard, that's like, oh, like you could sort of feel everyone exhale like, oh, well. He'll the, take care of it. Yeah. Worst case scenario is we'll get a nice, calm movie and this ship is going to be docked nice and clean. Which is interesting because when you look at the entire universe, let's say the next nine movies or whatever they have planned, it's like they can take risks in certain ones. Why? Because people don't expect much from Rogue One. They don't, mm. right? Han Solo might expect a little more. The three within the actual canon yeah. of the Star Wars films, you expect a ton. Sure, the saga movies. You yeah. cannot screw that up at all, right? Whereas I'm feeling like with Ron Howard, I actually feel there might be a little risk with him doing it. The, like he'll take risks. He may, but you know what? I, I almost feel the opposite a little bit with those. Oh. I, I agree with you. I would like for that to be the playground where they take risks in the spinoff. But I think the the notion of the, the standalone movies is such like a new weird thing. And they're, even though it feels like it's been 10 years since Star Wars has been with Disney now, it's really mm -hmm. only been like... You know, two movies mm -hmm. so far, and and probably the pressure that they're feeling to like, we have got to reestablish this as like the capital T franchise to end all franchises. Absolutely, and I, I kind of wish they would take more chances, and yeah. I think that's what got Miller and and uh, uh, Lord fired. Or it could be some uh, yes, and I should say <laughs> this is Respect is, is if they're if they're. Um, if they're expanding this kind of this whole franchise around the world, for example, last time was China, right? Rogue One was big and they try to push mm. the film in China more, right? So maybe they're thinking that way too. It's like maybe these movies have to kind of fit in certain places more than others. I'm guessing That's, that could be as they expand, which is why they can take risks on choice of actors, this, that content that we don't understand exactly, while still filling in the, the actual universe. Sure. So Kathleen Kennedy hired a lot of these guys almost all at once. That's not entirely true. And within relatively rapid succession, uh, we knew that Gareth Edwards was going to direct a spin-off movie. That became Rogue One, of course. We knew that Ryan Johnson was going to do episode eight. Um, for a hot second, he was also connected to write a script or a treatment for nine, but that might have just been like one of the trades running away with themselves. Right, they've probably been thinking about this before the announcement was made. Yeah. Think of how many years. I have yeah, no idea. And, and that's that's just it. So that's my question. And then we learned Phil Lord and Chris Miller and then Colin Trevorrow. Oh, and we had Josh Trank in there. He was one of the early announcements. Yeah, or Guillermo del Toro. Wasn't he up he, for it? He was talked about, but never I officially announced. I know, I think everyone is sort of curious, right? Yeah, to yeah, see yeah. What, To see what he might do. I am. Um, so <laughs> maybe, is it a... 
is it was it too much enthusiasm to say, hey, not only are we going to make five movies, but here are the directors, even though one of them isn't even going to think about it for three years? No, because I think they're doing exactly what they did after that, which is they can move things around. Mm. First, you get people excited, huge news blast. You get a few people that are, yes, I'm going to definitely do that. Get them going, and then they can kind of move from there. Because the reality is this thing is greater than every single one of those people combined, right? Mm-hmm. This is what the issue is. This is why they change directors so much, because you're dealing with so many moving parts. The first being that this 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 has to be on lock. People gotta like it. If it gets away from it, and then yeah. outside of all that other stuff is is dealing with the Kathleen Kenny machine. Right, right. It's a huge thing. Yeah. As soon as there's a dent in in the armor, as soon as someone finds that exhaust port, baby, this is done. She only reports the Snoke, that. right? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's that's correct. Snoke. Uh, tonight, the role of Snoke will be played by Bob Iger of the Disney Company. Um, I uh, I had joked in in the notes that we were talking about this, wondering if Kathleen Kennedy is an impulse shopper. In a way, as far as directors, and what I mean by that is, of course, when she lined up a lot of these guys, they were like the hot thing that you know Ryan Johnson had Looper, sweet, that's great, and Gareth Edwards was coming off of Godzilla, which at the time was a thing, and. Um, and Phil Lord and Chris Miller had Lego Movie and Twenty One mm, Jump and like they were right. very hot. Also, um, Colin Trevorrow had Jurassic World. He knows what he's doing with a giant. Right, so right, like, right. Eh, well, that's why they call not. it a roster, right? Uh, whether sure. it be in sports, mm-hmm. whether it be a roster, you know, whatever it is. And so you have that. And someone like Kathleen Kennedy probably likes that whole thing, right? You spread it out in front of you. You see how things kind of fall in place. Yeah. But the reality is, this is going to go on for how many years? All of them? Yeah. All the years? Well, all the years. Nine, <laughs> 10, 30, 50 years. Yeah. So they have to set this kind of thing up. And I think it's much different than Marvel, too. Because oh, they're yeah. inventing new stories a lot. Star Wars, you yeah, feel? Of course. Or, or Marvel? Star Wars. You think Marvel's not? They are, but but what I'm saying is you have characters that are already kind of really established. Uh, sure, okay. And they have much more to you know yeah, to, of course. to refer to in terms of writing. Of course. So the I'm going to use the, the Marvel segue as wondering if... Uh, Lucasfilm, if they should, should they at all, maybe not, shift to this Marvel model, which, um, for better or for worse, has has a bit of a fairly uniform house style, which is not to say that every movie is the same, because they're not. Um, different directors are definitely bringing slightly different flavors, but when you take a step back, I mean, there's no question that those movies are designed to fit together like puzzle pieces, and if one, you know, was super wackadoo in like where this one's gonna totally be film noir they're like alright well that's cool as a standalone but I don't see how it fits and like I think that's why um, uh, uh, Ant-Man collapsed when it was Edgar Mm. Wright developing it for so many years because Edgar Wright is a genius director Mm, mm, and probably mm. wanted to do something I mean I think it's the Han Solo story I think Chris Miller and Phil Lord were also like hey let's push the comedy here let's improvise here let's push this comedy until suddenly it was a Han Solo movie that maybe wouldn't fit what 30 40 years of fandom think of as Han Solo here's what I really feel about that Here's what I really feel about that. It's, uh, you have to deal with different kinds of familiarity, right? So there's certain things that are familiar about Star Wars and certain things that are familiar about the Marvel Universe. I don't think the general public is familiar with the Marvel Universe as they are mm. with Star Wars right now at this moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, you I think actually so. Actually so. So when they put these teams together, people like the movie and they have to go back to that home-cooked meal. Whereas Star Wars is a different kind of familiarity. They have to be familiar with 
the the ships, the toys, the universe, the feel. That's a little more important, actually. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. The the feel for sure. I mean, if you saw a Star Wars movie and it didn't feel quite like a Star Wars movie, then then it it's, might still be a that great familiarity movie. is more important than Marvel. You're expecting a certain kind of like sure look and certain things that triggered a certain time the overall the overall movie. But this mm-hmm. is something different. And Star Wars is in uncharted territories because they're expanding this universe. They're making things up. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. I guess what I what I meant, of course, about the Marvel thing is that ultimately the real guiding hand isn't is sort of the executive producer. That's Absolutely. like Kevin Kevin Feige, and I wonder if Kathleen, in a way, is sort of taking that role. Maybe not as much. I mean, I think that she would like to be the. You're directing this. I'll check in, but go crazy. But it sounds seems like she's had to step maybe in she's or Snoke look over a few. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. She doesn't report to Snoke. She's Snoke. She's Snoke. Well, here's the That's thing: your Snoke is. Theory. The reality is she probably sees the dailies just like everybody else. Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. So they, they probably can't make... It's so expensive to make, they can't make a mistake yeah. at all. They yeah. watch it as it's going on, and they're so good at this that they're able to do that. They can figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Guillermo del Toro really quickly. Are there directors that you'd, you'd like to see take a crack at Star Wars, or do you think it's sort of a moot point and everyone sort of needs to make a Star Wars movie, not it, a Guillermo movie? It's not, it's not necessarily a moot point, but I think the same kind of people that we'd all suggest, you'd either say, because we all have, you know, Guillermo del Toro, I mean, like, I would think, like, I'm crazy a little bit. I'm like, what would Michael Mann do with a movie like this, <laughs> right? Yeah. What would Ridley Scott do? Well, sure. Ridley Scott would turn into Blade Runner right. or whatever. Right. But like, we could all name all of those types of people. Yeah, that we but, like, right? Right, that we like, and it'll and it'll hedge. But the only one I could really say is Guillermo del Toro. But the other one is you could kind of look online and see what other people have uh, you know recommended. Like other directors have recommended. Yeah. Like I would love to see this person. But the reality is. I don't mean to say this in a negative way. It's got to kind of be a company man at the end of the day. I agree. I, I think that's that's the truth. Or and they know how to be a company man. I think, right, that's that's the version of that that I like a little bit more. Like, I, I can see J.J. Abrams in Force Awakens. I fully expect to see a little bit of Ryan Johnson in, in his movie. But, yeah, at the end of the day, it also has to be someone who says, okay. It's bigger than all of them combined. Yeah, yeah. And, and the guys that realize that it's bigger than all of them combined, I think, are probably the ones that are the most successful. Absolutely, so absolutely. And maybe, right. you know, on the Han Solo movie, those guys, they're cool. Maybe that was the problem. Yeah. Oh, and if, right. if certain reports can be believed. Yeah, right. That exactly. was some of that, and I, and that that seemed to be the case with Colin Trevorrow also, as as there was one story. But uh, this is not this is not a kind of job where you're like, leave me alone, come back in a few <laughs> weeks. Yeah. No, it's like, what are you eating for lunch? Yes. Right. Everything. Right. I'm going to approve that. Yeah. Um, we could talk about this uh, all night long, and uh, we will see how all the drama pans out with the next installments of the Star Wars franchise, the seemingly drama-less The Last Jedi, to be released on December 15th, and the still-untitled Han Solo movie, which has been nothing but drama, as we've discussed, and is scheduled for release on May 25th, a short eight months away. Short eight months? They're still shooting. Why are we doing that? Right, 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 right. That's a whole different segment. Um... Uh, either way, may the force be with them. They're going to need it. But as Master Yoda says, Cisco, always in motion is the future. Are you with me on this? I am, and it's give me what I want. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> on that insistent note. If variety is the spice of life, 
and make no mistake, the spice is life. Then British author Anthony Johnston has one extensive spice rack. Anthony has had a prolific career writing the comic series Wasteland, video games such as Dead Space and Shadows of Mordor, adaptations of Alan Moore poetry, and young adult novels, and of course, the graphic novel The Coldest City, which has been adapted for the screen as Atomic Blonde, and then he even served as a co-producer on the film. We bridged two continents and spoke a couple weeks ago via the technological marvel known as FaceTime to catch up with everything that Anthony is involved with right now. Within the wide world of genre entertainment, some writers stick to one medium, comic books, video games, novels, and even within that one medium, carve out their niche, superheroes or sci-fi, for example. Anthony Johnston, however, is a man who does all of the above, crafting stories of various flavors in whatever medium you throw at him, all while podcasting and creating music as well. And this all makes me feel like a massive underachiever. Mm. Anthony, welcome to 1.21 Gigawatts. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for being here. Do you have a preferred medium to write in as I rattle off all of those things that you've done? Is there one that is home for you? Um, I guess I guess it's fair to say that comics is home. Uh, it's, it's always tricky to say a preferred medium because, you know, I just... I do work in a lot of different media and uh, I enjoy working in all of them. It's just that comics is kind of my first love, mm-hmm. if you will. Uh, it's the medium I grew up reading. Uh, not that I didn't read novels and stuff as well, but one of my earliest memories is of my father reading uh, a comic to me, a British children's comic called The Beano. Before I could even read, he was literally reading the comics to me when I was like four <laughs> years old or something. Um, so comics has, has just always been there for me. And so, yeah, it's kind of my first love and certainly the medium in which I've done the most work. Um, so it feels like home. I'd say that that's fair. But I do enjoy working in you know, lots of other different media as well, as you say. How do you decide which medium, whether it's comics or prose or, or whatever, is, is the best platform for a given story when, when you're coming up one? Or, or does it in some cases come down to the opportunity that's presented to you? I mean, obviously, when uh, you know, a game company says, hey, we're doing a game, then congratulations, you're writing a game. But right. <laughs> when, when it's an original piece um, that's springing from you, uh, how, how do you decide on where you think it's going to make the most sense? I don't have a sort of a logical process that I can explain for that, really. That really just comes down to instinct, I guess, and the feeling as much as anything. I tend to, when I come up with ideas for stories, they, you know, concurrent with coming up with the idea is a decision of which format it would work best in. So when I come up with an idea for a graphic novel, I've come up with an idea for a graphic novel uh, and it wouldn't occur to me to try and write it as a prose novel or to try and, you know, sort of make it into a video game or whatever and vice versa. Um, you know, if I come up with an idea for a short story, then that's that's the medium in which I'm going to write it. I'm not necessarily then thinking, oh, maybe I can turn that into a comic. That's just not, maybe I'm unusual in that respect. I don't know, but that's not just not how my brain works. Let's rewind back to the beginning for you, your humble origins. Uh, what was your path to becoming a professional writer, other than your, your dad reading stories to you as a four-year-old? Um, were there early influences uh, that set you down that path? Yeah, I mean, I always loved reading 
stories and fiction. I loved experiencing stories, you know, watching movies, reading books, reading comics. Um, I was a voracious reader and consumer of stories and fiction from a very early age. And I always had, and I, this is so long ago that I literally, I, I couldn't sort of try to remember back to, you know, a kind of particular moment if I tried, but as far back as I can remember, I always had the desire to create my own stories as well. Um, and Star Wars, like so many of my generation, was an enormous influence on me. Uh, and I am a huge just sort of sci-fi and fantasy fan anyway. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's down to Star Wars, or maybe I was already into that stuff before Star Wars came around. I, I, like I say, this is so far long ago <laughs> sure. that I, I don't really remember. Um, but I, I was very much into sort of nerd genres like science fiction, fantasy, uh, spy thrillers, that sort of thing, you know, James Bond movies and what have you. And then as I got older, obviously I matured and started reading more hard sci-fi uh, and, you know, sort of more mature spy books, spy authors like John Le Carre and Len Dayton. Uh, I got into Sherlock Holmes when I was very young and read the entire, you know, every Sherlock Holmes thing I could get my hands on. Nice. Uh, ended up reading the entire works of the internal Sherlock Holmes when I was maybe 12 years old or something. Uh, so, yeah, I just kind of... Historical fiction as well I was into for quite a while. I should be more specific. Historical war fiction I was into when I was quite young for quite a while. So there's all these mishmash of stuff going in, and I grew up reading the comic 2000 AD and uh, horror comics like Scream and Action Force comics and reading cyberpunk science fiction and Harry Harrison's Stainless Steel Rat books. I loved those when I was a kid. And Michael Moorcock's fantasy stuff. And like I say, just this whole melange of things coming together. And, uh, and I think maybe that's why I work in such a wide variety of genres because I've always enjoyed reading and watching movies as well, a wide variety of genres. I have gravitated towards the sort of geek and nerd stuff, but I also enjoy just a good straight-up thriller or uh, comedy or, yeah, you know, spy thriller or detective drama. As long as it's a good story, I don't really mind. So, yeah, maybe that had an influence because I consumed all these different genres of media as I was growing up. That is spectacularly well-rounded. I love it. And not only uh, do I envy that list, but so much of it makes me smile because, of course, it mirrors a lot of what I read or, or watched or whatever growing up as well. You mentioned The Coldest City a little bit before we touched on that, so let's really dive in there. Even though uh, the spy thriller graphic novel was published five years ago, it's having a resurgence right now, of course, since it has been adapted for the big screen as the new Charlize Theron action film Atomic Blonde, congratulations on that. Holy smokes. Um, Thank you. I have a couple author friends whose work has been optioned for film, and, and I find that this often kicks off a waiting game, which may very well result in nothing at all. Can you walk me through the process from your perspective of hearing about the initial interest in, in the book and then realizing that the, that the momentum in a film version was in fact building and this was likely to happen? Sure. Uh, well, the first thing I should say is that, yes, like your friends, I have been through, I've been <laughs> down this road and through this process many times in the past where uh, works of mine have been optioned and then nothing ultimately happens. You know, there's a lot of excitement. Sometimes we've even got as far as having talent attached, you know, Ooh. stars 
attached to a, a, a movie version of one of my books, and then ultimately it falls apart and nothing happens. I've been down that road many times, mm-hmm. as have many authors. So, sure. so I, I know how rare, frankly, it is to actually go through the entire process and get a movie to come out at the other end. So I, you know, consider myself very fortunate to have had that happen. Um, what happened was when I wrote the book actually no no I found out and I only found this out at the premiere in Berlin a few months ago when I wrote the uh, treatment for the book that it's a bit of a uh, not, not a complicated story but I'll, I'll take you through it step by step I in 2008 I had was doing a lot of work for a lot of commissioned work work for hire video game work commissioned work work for other people essentially and I've always been a writer who focuses on primarily on my own creations on my original work uh, but I also I do write video games I do do commissioned work so you know and but what had happened was I got into a cycle where I was it felt like I was doing nothing but work for other people essentially for quite a while um, and so I wanted to take a break and write something for me it felt like it had been too long since I'd just written something for myself and so I and I knew that the next thing I wanted to do was this original spy thriller graphic novel so I uh, finished all my work sort of put aside all my deadlines um, and then took a couple of months in the summer of 2008 to write this script what became The Coldest City halfway through that process and I started writing it with no uh, idea of anybody that anybody would publish it Uh, I didn't have a publisher lined up. I had no contract, nothing like that. I just started writing because, you know, I wanted to do it. I I felt I needed to do it for for myself. And then halfway through, it was going really well. And I thought, okay, it's time to sort of talk to a publisher about this. And so I contacted uh, Only Press, who I worked with many times before. At the time, they were publishing Wasteland, but they'd also published many of my early graphic novels um, and said, you know, I'm doing this book do you want to publish it? Um, and by the way, it's the 20th anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down. So I wrote them a, a treatment, a synopsis of what I was currently, the book I was currently writing. Um, I, I found out now that that treatment basically was, because they said yes, they said yes, we'll publish it. And that treatment was well received enough that it was actually shown around a few people in Hollywood. Uh, which obviously does not happen all that often. Um, and Charlize's producers, uh, her company Denver and Delilah, liked it enough that they wanted to see the book when it was finished. What they actually ended up seeing first was the script, which again doesn't always happen. You know that's unusual. Sure. Uh, but the script went out to them, and they liked the script to the graphic novel enough that then we started. You know, they started talking. I say, I should say, we. That's not strictly true because I wasn't involved day to day in this process at all. Uh, this was all handled by Oni and their media partners in Hollywood. Um, and so they started talking about negotiations to option it, and that option was finalised in. Well, we started in 2010, and then was finalised in 2012, about three months before the book was published. Uh, so when it was published, we already knew we already had an option uh, with Charlize's company. And the reason that Charlie's wanted to option it was because she wanted to star in it. So that already was, you know, great uh, and kind of, wow, okay. 
you know, kind of mind-blowing. Um, but then, as you say, then it becomes a waiting game. And it wasn't until 2015, so three years later, that things really started moving again. Uh, and in the spring of 2015, it started gathering a lot of momentum. We suddenly, we'd already had a screenplay. Kurt Jonsson had already written the screenplay a few years before, first draft of the screenplay, but now suddenly we had a director attached. We started getting financing together, we went out to Cannes and, you know, pre-sold and stuff there. And then suddenly, yeah, by basically the summer of 2015, it was as close to a sure thing as anything ever gets in Hollywood. Um, and so that then it started getting really exciting. And then in the fall of 2015, then it was actually a sure thing. Then everything was signed. And Sam, Sam Hart, the artist, and I, uh, we got paid you know, our option money. And it was like, okay, wow, this is really happening. Um, and, you know, they had a filming date set. We had a location and a studio set up in Budapest, a whole cast. It was like, wow, okay, yeah, this is really rolling now. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing was kind of the usual story of hurry up and wait in Hollywood where uh, things, you know, happen really fast, then nothing happens for quite a long time, and then suddenly everything happens really fast again. Um, but we also got really lucky with the timing uh, at all stages of the production, really. Like, the fact that Charlize was looking for something like this to option and make herself at that time, you know, we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And then when we started getting financing and looking for casting, that was in the wake of Mad Max Fury Road, which, of course, before its release, nobody could have predicted how enormously successful that film would be. But then after it was released and after people saw it, suddenly everybody wanted to be in a movie with Charlize, in an action movie specifically with Charlize. So, yeah, we just we got so, so lucky uh, in so many ways. And, uh, yeah, the end result was that, unlike many other projects, this one actually happened. We actually got a movie out at the uh, at the other end of it and released it in theaters which is amazing it, it really is stunning how many planets need to be aligned for oh, for yeah. something like this to happen as you said and as you were telling that story i thought i was thinking to myself before you even mentioned it plus we needed fury road to happen to even make yep. everyone see charlie's there on in in that light and then and then she has the you know, the mojo to green light, whatever she wants, practically at, at that point, if it's another action movie, that's, that's incredible. And, and now of course that the movie is complete and released. What are, what are your thoughts? Are there things that you love about it or things that you hate about it? Did they get characters right or wrong or <laughs> what, are, what do you think? Oh, I love it. I love it. I mean, I was a co-producer on the movie as well. So I, I wasn't involved day to day, but I was kept in the loop and I gave lots of notes and feedback and, you know, I was asked my opinion about several things. And I saw early drafts of the screenplay. I visited the set. Uh, you know, I gave notes on uh, a couple of rough edits of the film, that sort of thing. So, uh, so I already knew before it was released that I liked it, you know, <laughs> that I was happy sure. with the direction it went in. Um, I mean, the moment that Dave, Dave Leach, the director, the moment that he was attached... Uh, originally, it was his partner, Chad Stelsky, and him were both attached to co-direct it, as they did with the first John Wick movie. Um, and, of course, if you've seen John Wick, the moment they were attached, 
I knew that okay, this is going to have a lot more action in it than it currently, you know, th- <laughs> right. than is currently planned. Um, but that's okay because I loved John Wick. And what happened there was uh, the windows of opportunity for filming both John Wick Two and Calder City just happened to you know when Charlize was available, basically happened to be at the same time, and that's why. They they didn't split because they're still partners in eighty seven eleven. They mm. still run a company together. You know, uh, there, there was no falling out or anything. But they basically said we can't make both these movies at once. So Chad said, "Well, I'll, I'd rather do John Wick two And Dave said, "Well, I'd rather do Coldest City." So that was that was you know convenient. So that's what they did. Um, and as like I say, the moment that Dave got involved, we knew that it was going to be an action heavy movie. Uh, but the screenplay was already more action heavy than the book anyway because and, and I was all in favour of that because the book is I mean I'm very proud of the book don't get me wrong you know and I, I I'm very happy with the book that we made but it is a sober noirish John le Carre style Cold War spy thriller that's the book that I set out to write and that's what we did um, you know it's exactly how I intended it to be however that's not going to work on the screen. You know, it, it, the book has even less action than Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, for heaven's sake. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, right. that's, and that's a movie that was not replete with action scenes. Um, <laughs> so, so I knew that you couldn't do that. You can't film that and expect people to sit through it. I wouldn't sit through it, for heaven's sake. Um, so I had no problem with that direction of, okay, well, let's keep and what this is what they did they kept the broad story they kept well more than the broad story they kept the structure of the book they kept the general story of the book they kept most of the characters almost all of the characters in the book are in the movie almost unchanged um uh, and then they just ramped up the action and there are a few places in the book where action is implied but not shown Mm -hmm. and so here obviously they show it um there's a wonderful scene in the movie where uh, when Lorraine first crosses the wall into East Berlin and she is followed by the Russians and she loses them at Alexanderplatz in a cinema. None of that is in the book. What's in the book is she crosses the wall, she goes to her rendezvous and he says, you're late. And she says, yes, that's because I was followed, but I lost them 20 minutes ago. All the film is doing is going, okay, what, what happened? Filling in those 20 minutes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what happened in those 20 minutes? Um, you know, what happened was an absolutely kick-ass fight scene <laughs> between <laughs> Lorraine and the Russians. So, as I say, I I love it. I, I think uh, that Dave pr- proved himself as a tour de force director, and, you know, it is way more faithful than most people would expect, certainly than I expected, uh, you know, from a Hollywood adaptation of a book. So, yeah, you know, there are... And don't get me wrong, my favourite movie of all time is Blade Runner, which is mm. almost nothing like the story it's based on. So I have no problem with film adaptations that aren't faithful to their source material. But the fact that this one is really is quite incredible because it could have been completely different. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It, you know, it's it's funny when you talk about specifically that action sequence uh, in the cinema. That is one that almost feels like it steps out of the graphic novel, if for no other reason, because what your illustrator, what Sam Hart did, is so stark uh, so frequently yes. in the book. And then so to see an action scene, you know, to see these, these two people battling, especially 
behind the the flip side of a of a of a cinema screen, which I'm such a sucker for, anyways. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the the like the well, and it's Tarkovsky as well. It's Stalker, which is yeah. like my favorite Tarkovsky. So when I saw that in the initial rough cut, I was just like, I threw my hands up. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you're right. David Leach absolutely knocked this out of the park. It's dripping with style uh, from you know from the credits. You, the credit sequence alone sort of yep. establishes like if you have a seatbelt, fasten it now because because <laughs> we are we're we're doing this. We're doing this thing. Let's talk a little bit about Wasteland uh, since it came up before. So the the post post apocalyptic series it ran from 2006 to 2015. Uh, when that story wrapped up after nine years of writing it, did you feel like a weight had been lifted off of you, or was it bittersweet to wrap it up? When you live with something that long, uh, what, are, what are the feelings about finishing it up? Yeah, kind of six or one half dozen the other. It, uh, at the time, the initial feeling was, yes, one of kind of relief and, oh, I don't have to think about this anymore. That was very quickly supplanted and overwhelmed by... Feelings that, and I don't want to sound indelicate here, but they genuinely felt like feelings of grief mm. uh, and sort of loss. And the fool that I am, uh, <laughs> I didn't, I fell it basically about a month after finishing the last issue of Wasteland, I fell into a really serious funk. And, you know, peaks and valleys of emotion for a fiction writer, frankly, are not at all unusual. But it was by far the deepest funk that I had been in for a long time. And it took me literally weeks to figure out why. And of course, it was because I'd just finished writing this wasteland, and I essentially was saying goodbye to this thing that had been a part of my life, not just for the eight, nine years in which I'd been actively scriptwriting it for comics, but also the previous 15 years during which I'd been planning it and thinking about it in the back of my head. And because I literally had been planning to do so, to do Wasteland in one form or another since I was 18 years old. Um, and so finally sort of closing the lid, as it were, on that and saying that's done now and is no longer a part of my life. Of course, you know, I realize in retrospect, of course, that's going to bring about feelings of loss and yeah almost grief but it took me weeks to realize that that was why i felt that way mm -hmm. uh, and when i did when i did the feeling lifted almost instantly when i realized why i was in this funk uh then it, it ended you know almost immediately it's like oh oh of course and then i came you know sort of could come to terms with it but yeah the immediate feelings were highly unexpected you know i was not expecting to feel like that at all when i look back now from even further out uh i just have this enormous sense of pride over it you know that uh i and to a large part christopher mitten my co-creator on wasteland and artist for most of the series um we did it you know we made this enormous effectively 1400 page graphic novel uh that took almost 10 years to make uh, over 60 issues and it was tough at times you know there were trials and tribulations along the way but we did it we told us the story that we wanted to tell with no compromise in exactly the way we wanted to tell it uh and now it's out there in the world and to my delight there are thousands of people out there who 
clearly wanted to read this story and who have told me, you know, how much they enjoyed it, which obviously is fantastic. But I wrote it primarily for myself. Uh, you know, I write most things primarily for myself. I like to write things that I would want to read. And then if other people like them as well, well, that's, that's lovely, that's a bonus. But uh, in the case of Wasteland, yeah, that was, it turns out, a lot of people also wanted to read that story because Wasteland's quite unusual for a post-apocalyptic story in many ways in that it is, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic epics are not unusual, but Wasteland differs from many of them in the way that it is very serious. You know, there's no light-heartedness or comic relief or, you know, there are occasional jokes, but it's very, very dark humour jokes in it. Uh, it's very complex. There are lots of characters and you are expected to remember many of them after they've been away for long periods during the story. Um, it is one long story. It's not, you know, a series of vignettes featuring a couple of the same characters. It is one big, long, epic story. Um, it deals with religion to a very large extent, which most post-apocalyptic stories kind of gloss over. Uh, it deals with the, you know, the sort of culture of how you go about rebuilding society. And it addresses, uh, you know, sort of issues of friendship and faith and actual science fiction, you know, beyond the idea of, oh, it's post-apocalyptic, therefore it's a science fiction story. Later on in the story, there are actual science fictional concepts and, uh, you know, stuff, that elements that go into the story. So it is unusual in many respects, and that's one of the reasons why I wasn't sure, even when I started it, whether anybody else would care for it at all, whether, you know, it would be popular, whether anybody else would want to read it. But as I say, to, uh, to add light, uh, luckily, you know, lots of people did. Uh, and so, yeah, as I say, my overall feeling is just one of accomplishment and enormous pride. Well, that's that's well deserved, of course, and um, uh, it's it's got to be so appealing and encouraging and gratifying to know that so many people uh, stuck with it for so long and and really absorbed the whole piece and and have been very vocal in telling you about it. I think that's wonderful. Um, we're spending a lot of time talking about your work as a writer, but of course, your creative pursuits are multitudinous and varied. Uh, you host the podcast Unjustly Maligned, which was it has a fantastic premise. Uh, could you please explain the show for the listeners? Tell tell us about Unjustly Maligned. Sure, it is. Uh, I like to call it the show for people who go against the grain. The concept is that I invite a guest onto the show, and they spend the episode talking to me about something they love that other people don't. <laughs> uh, now that can take a variety of, of guises it can in terms of media it can be pretty much anything you know we have most people want to talk about movies but we have also had people talking about TV shows about novels about comic books about music uh, you know albums uh, and even real things you know we had uh, just recently I had an episode where um, we had a scientist come on and defend Pluto essentially <laughs> uh, you know and sort of say that Pluto has been hard done by when it was downgraded uh, from being a real planet to being a dwarf planet uh, I try to make it a positive show it's always about talking to somebody who has a real love and passion for something whatever that thing is and I really just want to dig into why they love it and what it is that appeals to them about it um, in the hope that that will encourage other people to then check it out. 
Uh, and I do that mainly because because I sometimes get people saying, oh, you know, uh, it would be funny if you did a show where it was things, popular things that people hate. And I'm like, that's the internet. That's, <laughs> you know, that that's all over the place. There are a thousand blogs and podcast episodes and even TV shows dedicated to that sort of thing, frankly. Um it gets a bit tiring after a while. What there aren't, in my opinion, are enough places to be positive about things and to hear people discussing their love of something, no matter how unusual or niche that thing may be. And that's that's why I created the show. I, I love that attitude. That is largely one of the driving principles behind this show as well, in that I really would prefer to spend the time and energy celebrating things that, that I enjoy, that, that people like, rather than digging into the, well, this movie opened and here's why it sucks. Um, right, because, right. In, indeed, there is, uh, there is no shortage of that in not only uh, popular culture, but sort of the, the very fabric of living in 2017 in general. Well, yeah. well but also, the thing is with that, that there's, for, all it does is give oxygen and awareness to something that you don't think deserves it, yes. which I, I don't understand. Indeed. Why would you spend your energy talking about something that you think people should avoid? Mm -hmm. That's all you're going to do is make them more curious about it. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, as I release you back into the wild, how can people best contact you and or follow your work? I know you're on Twitter. Yes. So the key to finding me is... <laughs> this sounds complicated. Uh, the key to finding me is spelling my name correctly. Yes. <laughs> uh, because I have a slightly unusually spelt name. If you can spell it correctly, then you will find me. It's that simple. So, my name is Anthony Johnston, and it is spelled A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. So, there is no H in Anthony, and there is a T in Johnston. If you can get that right, basically You're you golden. will find me. <laughs> because put that into Google, and like the first four pages are all me. Uh... And also it means that I can get pretty much any URL or social media accounts that I want. So uh, my website is anthonyjohnston.com. On Twitter, I am at Anthony Johnston. Instagram, slash Anthony Johnston. Facebook.com, slash Anthony Johnston. Just put my name in, and if you spell it correctly, you will find me. I suddenly wish that my name was just one letter weirder so that I could get all the URLs that I wanted <laughs> as well. I feel it. Well, but if I have right if I have one regret it is that I didn't choose a pseudonym that Americans could spell <laughs> because the bane of my life is uh, especially American media so uh, cannot count the number of times and to be fair some British media does this well although it's less common over here but I cannot tell you the number of times where there'll be a review or an article about me or my work and my name is spelt wrong. And it's just like, come on, guys, <laughs> do your research. I, I agree. It's it's not difficult. And uh, someday, someday the Americans will finally catch up. I, uh, I've got faith in us as a nation that eventually we'll start to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> See, well, my, that's, my theory is that because it's a relatively ordinary name, it sounds like an ordinary name. Mm -hmm. So people think they know how to spell it. And so they don't think to check. Bill Sinkovich 
the comic artist. Nobody ever spells his name wrong. No, you're because right. <laughs> just by hearing it, you know, oh, I'd better check how that's spelled. Yeah. Whereas you, you hear Anthony Johnston and you just go, oh, I know how to spell that. And so they don't check. That is so true. That's so true. All right. Well, that's a that's a public service announcement that we're going to leave <laughs> off with then. Everyone, make sure that you're correctly spelling the names of these fantastic people who are creating media that you must be consuming. And Anthony, certainly a lot of that is coming from you. And uh, we appreciate that. And I appreciate your time for the podcast. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And does Anthony compose music as well? He sure does, of course he does. You can hear his ambient instrumental mood music under the band name Silencion at Bandcamp.com. That's it for this episode of 1.21 Gigawatts. Many thanks to my guest Anthony Johnston and our mutual pal Ridley McIntyre for helping us connect in the first place. And thanks, of course, to you for inviting me into your ear canals to nerd out. It means more to me than you know, truly. I'd love to hear what you think about this latest audio adventure. What do you like? What deserves to venture into Waterdeep and meet their fate at the tentacled eye stalks of Xanathar the Beholder? Well, you can tell me by leaving me a message at one of the show's many social media channels. They are the 1.21 Gigawatts Facebook page, where you can follow and discuss the latest film, TV, comic book, and genre entertainment news. On Twitter, I'm at 121Gigawatts, and on Instagram, I'm 1.21 underscore Gigawatts. Plus, you can find all of those feeds in one magnificent destination at the 1.21 Gigawatts website. It has photos, blog entries, every episode to date, newsletter sign-up information, and more. Get thee to www.121gigawatts.com and wallow in the nerdliness. And if you're not already aware, every episode of this podcast is available for free right now in the podcast section at the iTunes store. It is so easy to subscribe and never miss a geeky second. You know what I'd really appreciate? Whether you're a subscriber or not, you can leave the show a review, hopefully a good one, on iTunes, which will help more people find the show, which would make me a happy, happy man. And if you're not an iTunes user, you can always find us by searching for 1.21 gigawatts at soundcloud.com. Huge gratitude to the Grand Marshal of the Gain, composer and my co-producer, David Sisko. And did he rock it out on that Star Wars segment? Should we put him behind a microphone more often? Impressive. I think maybe we should. You are and remain the best, Sisko. Dear listener, if you enjoyed this travel-sized chunk of geekitude, please share it with a nerdy friend. You can follow, like, etc. all of those social media accounts mentioned a few seconds ago and let people know that you're listening. I'm Brad Barton, and until next time, here's Nerd Rock Band H2Awesome with our rad-tastic theme song. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Every geek wants is what we got From Doctor Who to Aqualad You might meet Luke and Leia's dad Pop culture that is super rad Hosted by some guy named Brad It'll rock you to your nylon Cylon socks 1.21 freaking gigawatts Expert in intelligence collection and hand-to-hand combat. Agent Gascoigne was killed last night. 
Did you know him? Enough to say hello. He had an atomic bomb of information. Find out who's hunting our operatives and trust no one. 